0: Hello, this is Richard Simmons at the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. Today I'm sharing from a Bible study series, The Rich Man and Lazarus. This is part three of a three-part series. I hope you enjoy it. So we're back to the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And if you look real closely, you'll recognize that this parable reveals something about eternity and in fact one of the first things you need to note or you should note is that these men Lazarus and the rich man they had physical bodies they weren't spirits they were they had physical bodies And this is something, yesterday morning I I was amazed, not amazed, I shouldn't say that, but a number of guys had no idea of the reality that in heaven you will have a physical resurrected body. We're not going to be these spirits floating around in the clouds like some people think. I mean, think about the Apostles' Creed. You know, sometimes I don't think we pay much attention to the words, but it says, I believe in the resurrection of the body. That's not talking about Jesus' body. He's talking about us. Now there's a lot of scripture that bears this out. And so I thought it'd be good for us to look at a couple of verses uh, that shows us that we will have physical, glorified, resurrected bodies. So if you would turn to 2 Corinthians and go to chapter 5. And we're going to read verses 1 and 2. In fact, Warren Lightfoot, would you read? The, go to chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5, and read verses 1 and 2. For well, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Do you see what Paul is referring? Yeah, some people don't know this. But uh, Paul, sometimes to make ends meet, would make tents. He was a tent maker. It's kind of a trade, basically, that he developed. Um, Because sometimes he didn't have the financial resources, and so he would go out and work as a tent maker. And so it's not surprising that he would use an earthly tent to describe our bodies. Because think about it what is a tent? It's an impermanent structure that's going to wear out over time. Just like our bodies. And when our bodies die, they're going to be replaced by a permanent structure, a glorified body that will never pass away. Now we see this, Paul talks about it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you turn back to 1 Corinthians 15... And we're going to read verses uh, 35 through 38. And he uses a different metaphor to describe what will happen to us. Ben, Patrick, how about reading that, would you? Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 38.
1: But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body. That will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it to, but God gives it a body, as He has determined. And to each kind of seed, He gives its own body.
0: Okay. Thank you, sir. Here, Paul is using a different analogy. He's using an agricultural analogy or illustration. He's saying, basically, our bodies are like seeds that must go into the ground and die before they become a glorious plant. Now most theologians agree that the new glorified body we receive will be very similar to Jesus' glorified body that you, you see after the resurrection. So that's, the first, that's something we all need to recognize. And I don't know about you, but I think that's good news that we will, be, we will have physical bodies that will last forever. Now, a second thing you notice in the parable is that both of these men retained their identities and some of their memory. Now, this is important because Eastern religion doesn't believe this. You don't have an identity. Or I'll put it this way. You have an identity for a very short period of time while you're on this earth. Because what happens, you get caught up in the endless cycle of death and rebirth. The idea or belief of reincarnation. So today you might be Sonny Culp, but when you die you may end up being reborn and being somebody on the other side of the world. Or if you haven't lived a good life, you may come back as your neighbor's cat. I mean, that's what they believe. And what think about it, when that happens? You no longer exist. I shared one of the groups last week, and I, I don't know that all of you heard this, but I remember I had a client who had an employee. She was an older older woman who contracted terminal cancer and was given, I don't, I don't remember how long she had to live, and she had some really strange beliefs uh, that was really tied into Eastern mysticism because she, she was convinced that, and she, this is the one thing that gave her hope, that when she died, she was going to come back as a butterfly. You know, you had I guess nobody reminded her, you first have to come back as a caterpillar, then you can become the butterfly. But people believe that. And you see, Christianity repudiates that completely. Because Hebrews 9.27 says, it is, a, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. We die once. Now this is significant. I think and this is important to recognize. In fact, I would ask you to turn, if you would, to Matthew 17. And while we're while you're turning to Matthew 17, does anybody have any comments or questions? What was
1: that? Hebrew, um...
0: Hebrews 9:27. Uh, Matthew 17. Again, what we're trying to do this week, and particularly next week, is to try to get a glimpse into eternity and what eternal life in God's kingdom will be like because most people even most Christians are clueless And and you'll see why this is so important to know and understand because it will shape your view of the future and it will impact the life you live on this earth Alright, we have Matthew seventeen. Jimmy, all right, how about reading verses one through eight? After six days Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was speaking, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus that's it that would be interesting to experience that and just to digress for a second what strikes me as Jimmy was reading that I mean here are three men who were going to be leaders of the early church and you would think God might have a lot to say to them but really he gave them one simple instruction and what was that Listen to Jesus. Listen to him. Isn't he probably saying the same thing to us today? But the reason I wanted to read these verses is who who basically shows up on the scene? Look at verse 3. Yeah, they literally see... Moses and Elijah. Now think about Moses. Moses, <clears throat> most people think Moses is this superstar, but Moses was a just, man just like us. In fact, he was not he wasn't a very good speaker. In Exodus 4, he talks about hey, Lord, I'm slow of speech. I'm not, you know, he was a real talented guy. And yet God did great and mighty things to him. But my point is, he Moses and Elijah, they're just like us. They had been dead for centuries but they're still alive. They continue to have their identities. They're not some unidentifiable spiritual being that's out there. In heaven, guys, you will be you. And this is crucial because if you think about it, if you lose your personhood, life in God's kingdom is meaningless. And also our relationships with those who we hope to be reunited with would be meaningless. Any comment on this? Well, before we see but we proceed, um, I have a question. Are you looking forward to going to heaven? Is this something that you really greatly anticipate? I want to look at what Paul Paul's perspective on death and we're not far from well in the book of Philippians chapter 1. So if you would turn to Philippians 1 Now, if you remember, Paul was writing this letter from a jail. He was in prison. And the sentence of death really kind of hung over Paul most of his life as a follower of Christ. And look at he gives us a really good understanding of his perspective of death in verses 21, 22, and 23. Greg, would you read those for us? Philippians 1, 21
1: to 23. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which I prefer. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you.
0: Thank you. What is he saying? He says, for me to live is to live my life on this earth for Christ. But what does he say about death? To die is to gain. You gain when you die. And he's, I mean, he's just basically being honest. He says, you know, to... Remain on here in the flesh is important to bear fruit for God, but I much prefer to go and be with Him because it is far better. Now, let me ask you this question: Why do you think most people, even most, why why don't most people share Paul's perspective? Why do you think, Jim?
1: I think that we are locked into the performance anxiety of the world.
0: I hadn't thought about that. You may be absolutely right. I mean, some people are wondering, am I really going to make it in? That's why we've been doing this series. That there we have this assurance of salvation. Because we're saved by faith, saved by grace through faith, not as a result of good works. So I don't have to measure up. Anybody, but I think Jim's right. Because as we said, if you don't put your faith in Christ and you think that your works have something to do with your salvation, you're always wondering, have I been good enough? Have I lived a good enough life to get in? That's a scary thought. Any, any other reasons?
1: Fear of the unknown.
0: Fear of the unknown. Well, what, what's, what's really out there? <clears> At
1: <throat> a certain point, I don't think we've finished what we're supposed to do here. You
0: know? Okay. Yeah, I, I think I think that we talked about this yesterday, and that, that's I think that's a real biggie is the the, 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 the thought of separation from those you love, um, even though hopefully it's just going to be a short period of time. As what someone said yesterday, it's kind of like we're on a journey, and someone basically leaves and gets there before you do, but we're, you're all going to be there eventually. Hopefully, that's going to be the case in your life and in, in your loved ones. But. Um, one of the reasons I think that we don't share Paul's perspective is that we really don't understand the magnificence and the beauty of eternal life in God's kingdom. We have a hard time imagining it being better. Just think about it. We have a hard time. This is hard to believe. This just shows you kind of how foolish we are. But we have a hard time imagining it being better than the life we experience here on this earth and yet you think about this life it's such a broken world that we live in and there's so much pain, there's so much sorrow there's so many so many broken hearts and that's, that's the way life is in this broken planet we live on Jesus himself in, in John 16.33 says in this world you will have tribulation you will have pain Because we live in a depraved world. And Paul basically Paul experienced all kind of hardship. You read his letters. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. He he went hungry at times. Paul got it. He understood. I want to share with you some words that are very powerful. This is an essay written by a woman whose name is Betsy Childs. And I don't know whether she still works for Robbie Zacharias as she used to, and she would write essays um, that they would send out regularly. And she talks about this issue. She says, we have no sense that allows us to accurately imagine what we have never experienced. She says, perhaps this this is one reason that heaven is so hard for us to grasp. Some arrange elements of or have ideas of these earth harps, these clouds, and these choirs into a cartoonish picture of eternity. Some visualize their favorite things in this life enjoyed without restraint. Others are overwhelmed by the idea of a future with no end, a concept hard to envision beyond the endless reflection in a three-way mirror. She says, if your idea of heaven seems a little shabby even to you, it is because you don't know what you're talking about. Heaven is like nothing we have ever experienced with our senses on this earth. She says, words fail us when we try to describe sight to a person who's never seen or sound to a person who's never heard. Those who can't smell or taste have only a vague idea of what they're missing sensations are not communicable in words unless the person to whom you're speaking has or has had the use of that sense this is not because our senses are are unreal but because they are so profoundly real the new heaven and the new earth are likewise profoundly real too real to be conjectured in our limited imagination She says, until the day when eternity becomes the present, we must continue to approximate it with the best that our five senses have known. But one day, we will have the senses to experience the fullness of God's holiness, and it will be unlike anything we have ever tasted, felt, heard, or conceived. And the Apostle Paul tells us the same thing in 1 Corinthians 2.9. I know we're jumping around a lot, but turn, if you would, turn back to 1 Corinthians 2.9. Richard? Yeah, one
1: Jim? The thing that strikes me about that is the fact that Jesus did the reverse. He stepped down from heaven, which you described as beyond our imagination, and took on all things suffering so we could go and be with him.
0: Great point, Jim. Great point. And that's what, I mean, that's what, any, 2 Corinthians 8 9, that's kind of really what God says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, all of us, through his poverty, might become rich. That's exactly right. Anybody else? All right. 1 Corinthians 2 9 do you have it?
1: Got it? But just as it is written, things which I has not seen and hear and has not heard, and which has not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. You know
0: what he's saying there? He's saying, we cannot conceive what God has planned for us in the future. We can't conceive of it. That's the great thing, though. The Bible gives us a lot of glimpses into what to expect. And that's kind of what we're doing this week and next week. Because I think think when you really grasp it, we were talking about this in our, uh, all of our staff gets together, we were talking about this yesterday, how if we really grasp this as best we can, it will change everything as far as how we live today. But before we go on, I want to read, this is uh, a great illustration of what we've been talking about it, uh, it comes from a of, a of a novel from a from a novel that was written almost a century ago by a French author Andre Guide, G I D E, and the novel was La Symphonie Pastorale, and it's the story is set in Switzerland in the 1890s, and it involves a relationship between a Protestant pastor and a young girl who is blind. She's been blind from birth. The pastor regularly attempts to convey to Gertrude, that's her name, the beauty of her surroundings, the sprawling alpine meadows, the vibrant display of flowers, the majesty of the snow-capped mountains. When he tries to describe a rolling expanse of blue flowers by comparing them to the color of the sky, he comes to realize she's never seen a blue sky, so how is she to appreciate the comparison? Words are the only tools the pastor has to convey a reality that he knows to be true, (coughs) and yet he remains frustrated and deeply saddened because language alone can never adequately describe to Gertrude the beauty and wonder of the natural world. Language approaches the truth, but can never adequately describe it. In the story, however, Gertrude receives wonderful unexpected news An eye specialist, after an examination, believes that her condition can be corrected and her sight possibly restored. Three weeks after the surgery, Gertrude returns to visit the pastor, now able to see all the sights he had described to her in words alone. She tells him that when she was given back her eyesight, her eyes were opened to a world more beautiful than she could ever have imagined. She had never dreamed in her world of darkness that the daylight could be as bright, the sky so brilliant, the universe so vast. The flash of reality and the new sensation that Gertrude experienced upon receiving her sight far exceeded the verbal description she had been given. The words of the pastor were insufficient to the task of describing the glorious world she could now see with her own eyes. In every human observation and subsequent description, there will always remain some discrepancy, however small, between that which is observed and that which is described. And that's why the Apostle, what the Apostle Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 2.9. That nothing our eyes have ever seen, nor our ears have ever heard, <coughs> nor anything we have ever thought of or dreamed about, can compare what awaits us in heaven, God's eternal kingdom. As we live on earth and consider life beyond the grave, in one sense, we are very much like the blind Gertrude. The only means we have for perceiving the reality of heaven is words. As descriptive as they might be, words can never prepare us for the full radiance and wonder of what lies ahead. Any comments or questions on this?
1: You know, you have a bunch of outdoorsmen that you teach, I'm sure, and uh, if you have ever, I mean, I, I can only imagine this, it's like, you know, if anybody's ever spent their first night camping in Alaska, or come on, floating down a river and coming to a corner and coming to a canyon, or seeing the sun come up from a deer stand, yeah. I mean, it's just amazing.
0: I agree, I agree, and, and that's kind of what we're talking about here, until you experience it, words can only describe it, but they're very inadequate in describing the actual experience. You know,
1: it's, it's wild that we're talking about this. Probably most of y'all read that thing Saturday after Sid, you know. About starting. the ladybug. Yeah. I mean, that's just, that's
0: Yeah, if y'all haven't read that, you need to, it's it's, it's a post, and it's it's it'll give you chill, real chill books. All right, I want to spend the balance of our time considering eternal life in the kingdom of God. And we're given a number of great insights into this. And a good place to start is to recognize this. Um, How does God want us to regard earthly life as we think about eternity? You remember what Jesus says to Pontius Pilate? You know, one of the accusations leveled against Jesus is that he claims to be a king. And Pilate starts talking to him about it. And finally Jesus says, yeah, I am a king. But my kingdom is what? Not of this world. There, I do have a kingdom, and I am a king. But my kingdom is not of this world. And so he's telling us, yeah, it does exist. And in the book of Colossians... In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, let me read them to you real quick. Uh, The Apostle Paul tells us, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, in other words, if you're a Christian, he said, we should keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then he says, set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are on earth. What does he mean by that? He's saying we should see our lives on this earth properly, guys. Because if you see your life on this earth properly, you will live much more wisely. You'll live well. Because what you'll recognize, that this life is a journey it's a really short journey this is not our final destination and, he, and Paul is saying we need to have this perspective because it's the Bible is very clear this life is a short pilgrimage to an eternal place that we have never traveled and he's saying we should be anticipating our arrival we should be thinking about it Hebrews eleven thirteen. 13 says, we should see ourselves as strangers and exiles on this earth. 1 Peter 2.11 says, we are aliens and strangers to this world. But it really struck me, guys, if you think about it, if we love this world too much, then heaven is going to seem to be alien and strange. And I think that's what's happened. We are so wedded to this world, and this life, that the thought of heaven, the thought of eternity, frightens us. It's strange to us. It's alien to our being. That's what C.S. Lewis says. The Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have begun thinking less of the other world, that they have become so ineffective in this world any comments on this you with me
1: yeah Richard I think it's part of our design too our our bodies and our souls are made of the things of this world
0: and that's the desire of the things of this world and our, our focus is here but I think it leads points more like why we need to be led by the spirit Yeah, because it's the spirit that, 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 amen. And that, you know, we're called to be in the world not of the world. Amen. Right
1: on. Anybody else? Yeah, I heard a, a teaching that that I think is parallel to this. It was about Ephesians 3.20, which says that um, you know, now by the power at work within us, he is able to accomplish abundantly more than we could ask. It's great verse. It relates to your prayer life and yeah. thinking, you know, asking God for things, thinking about asking God what, you know, what He would have you to do. Yeah. And the way this guy approached it, he said that He wants to do abundantly more than you could ask or imagine. So if you've ever thought of it, spoke it,
0: that's really good. He wants to do more. So that's really good.
1: He said, approach every day. Yeah. Basically, He wants to surprise us. Yeah.
0: That's really good. That's really good. Thank you. Anybody else? You know, this is, I think this is really important uh, to know that um, heaven is not, it's described not just as a place. Well, this is important, if, and I think you can appreciate it. It's not described just as a place, but as a home, as a well-loved place. You know, when you travel, uh, I remember. Uh, you know, when I was a kid going to camp, the one thing you always really relish is going home, because ultimately that's kind of really where you belong. And in First, uh, excuse me, Second Corinthians five eight, Paul says, "To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord." You see, our home is where we belong. You know, that's where you are with your family. Heaven is referred to often in the scripture as the great city. I mean, it's, a city is a community of people. That's what you read in Hebrews 13:14. The writer of the Hebrews says, for, we, for here we do not have a lasting city, but are seeking the city which is to come. He's talking about heaven. If you read the book of Revelations, 15 times you see that the place where God will live eternally with his people referred to as a city. So heaven will be a very relational place, which is wonderful because we thrive on relationships. We're relational beings. Now, based on what I've said, there, therefore, really, there's two ways you can approach this finite life that we live here on earth. The first way, and this is the way most people approach it, because they really don't know any better. And that is, this world, this world right here, this is my home, and therefore, in the process, I allow it to capture all of my love and affection, I love this world more than anything else. And when that happens, you rage against death because death will take everything you have away from you. And that's why I think Paul tells us the worldly man loses heart. He despairs. And remember what he says, why? Because his body is decaying. And you're just watching it decay. But he says there's another approach. For the Christian, life is a journey. We're just like pilgrims. We're not settlers. We're merely passing through on a journey that leads to our permanent home, to the celestial city, which will be a community of God's family. And I think we need to stop, really, guys, and ask ourselves how do I really view life here on earth? C.S. Lewis says this is a really big deal. He says, if we really believe what we say we believe, if we really think that home is elsewhere and that life is a wandering to, to find home, why should we not look forward to the arrival? One of the things that you'll notice if you read the book of Philippians, Paul talks about finding the secret of real contentment and peace in life he says I found the secret and I really believe part of the the secret to finding real contentment and peace in life is to have the view that Paul had for me to live is Christ but to die is to gain think about it guys I believe this is truly part of that secret to be delivered from life's greatest fear, which is death. Armand Nikolai, in his book, The Question of, Not, uh, the Question of God, you know, the, the, the famous psychiatrist who teaches at Harvard Medical School, he says this is the, this is the thing that paralyzes people. It's, it's what, what basically steals joy in this life is the fear of dying. And this is a, I believe this is a real obstacle for so many people to find contentment and peace in this life because they, let's face it, guys, we are continually reminded of our mortality. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more funerals I find myself going to. The more I look in the mirror, I see how much older I'm getting. You can't get away from it. Plastic surgery will not do it. <laughs> I want to read to you a few words, just the, the person that I think has such a great perspective on this and it's shaped his life so much and that's C.S. Lewis who ironically died the same day John F. Kennedy was assassinated two weeks before he died Lewis had lunch with a faculty colleague and friend Richard Latterborough. it became apparent to Latterborough that this would probably be the last time they would be together in a, in a personal setting and he made this observation he said I quote I somehow felt it was the last time we should meet. And when he escorted me with his usual courtesy to the door, I think he felt so too. He said, never was a man better prepared to go. A week before his death, Lewis shared these words with his brother Warren. He said, I've done all that I was sent into the world to do, and I'm ready to go. And his brother remarked, I've never seen death looked in the face so tranquilly. I mean, that's guys, this is what we're looking for. This is a picture of a man who was truly liberated from the fear of death. Lewis had clearly entrusted his eternal well-being to a living Savior, the one who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Christ offers that same inner peace to anyone who is willing to surrender and say yes, To his offer of forgiveness and eternal life. Any comments or questions?
1: You know, Larry Thompson sent an email out this week that said most of the people that go through what I've just been through don't survive. He said, "I guess God's not done with me yet."
0: Amen. Y'all all all know Larry and his his accident. Anybody else? Well, we only have a few minutes left, and. There's a, a, an intriguing question that I'll just, I'll bring up, and we'll, we we'll really, that's what we'll look at next week. Um, and the question that, that I think people wonder is, what are we going to do in heaven? We got all this time, we're going to be there for eternity, what are we going to do? Anybody have an answer? Well, if you basically most theologians agree that if you look at God's mandate for life here on earth there are certain meaningful activities in his sight. And one of the things that you see is that what is he you see this in the Old Testament, you see it in Genesis, you see it throughout the scripture is one of his primary commands for humanity is that we are to be fruitful and productive. You see it in the Old and the New. I mean, think about the, par- the different parables that Jesus gives us. Oh, like the talents of, or the meanness. He expects productivity. He hates idleness. Now, as I was preparing this, I thought about, think about all of the occupations that are necessary because of the depravity of man. Think about that. And they'll be unnecessary. And so I guess Warren, you and Jim will be out of jobs. We don't need any, we won't need any lawyers. we gonna be pushing <laughs> If you're in the military, you know you, you you won't need any won't defense contractors be out of business. Policemen not necessary. Physicians, psychiatrists, counselors, won't need them. If you're in the life insurance business, you're definitely out of job. But as someone very, a very godly man said to me, he said, I am convinced that we will be assigned respons- responsibilities that will be meaningful. And these responsibilities will be in alignment with the gifts and the abilities that we've been endowed with. But think about it. Work won't stress you out. You won't have to try to impress other people. You don't have to fear failing. And your work won't be self-serving. It will benefit others and will ultimately bring honor and glory to God. And next week we're going to look at, I think, two important features of heavenly life that are very important and very powerful for us to understand. Because I'm, I'm telling you guys, the more we grasp and understand this, the more it will shape our perspective on death, dying, and eternity. But I want to close by asking you this question. As we talk about heaven, as we talk about eternity, do you believe it's real? I mean, really. Do you believe in the reality of it? I mean, I think sometimes, as we've said, it's kind of hard to really imagine this. And so, but I want to I want to I want to close with this thought, as we think about the reality of heaven and what gives us that. What? Why should we have that hope? What gives us that real hope of heaven? Rollo May. This I love this story. Rollo May was a very famous therapist, um, and he wrote a book a number of years ago titled "My Quest for Beauty." And the book described basically his lifelong search for beauty. And he went through a, he had a psychological breakdown. And went away and spent some time on this island called Mount Athos. Um, which is, it's really a peninsula in Greece that's inhabited only by monks from the Greek Orthodox Church. And when he arrived there, he arrived right during Easter week, the week leading up to Easter. And he went and celebrated Easter with, the, these mon- with these monks. Though he was not a Christian, not even sure he believed in God. He said he vividly described the deeply symbolic service with all the religious icons and incense which filled the air. During the service, the priest gave to each person present three wonderfully cut, decorated Easter eggs. He then pronounced, Christ is risen. Everyone in the service, including Rollo May, responded, He is risen indeed. And again, May was not a Christian, and yet he was profoundly impacted by this experience. And then he asked a question that I think is of ultimate significance. He said, I was seized then for a moment of spiritual reality. And then he asked this question. What would it mean for the world if he had truly risen? What would it mean to the world if he had truly risen? What would it mean? Everything. Everything. I was just reading the other day where the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 9, he talks about that he was under the burden of facing death. And he said, but I survived. And he said, what I learned, God was trying to teach me not to trust in myself, but in the God who raises the dead. He says, we set our ultimate hope on the God who raises the dead. In fact, his actual word is, it says, it is on he who we set our hope. So what does it mean if Christ really rose? It means everything. It means he is the Jewish Messiah. It means the Bible is true. It means his words are true. That there will be a judgment. And that there is a glorious kingdom of God. And we can rest on Jesus' own words in John 14. I go, and I prepare a place for you. And know this, that we will be expectantly waiting for your arrival.
1: You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, founding director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama.
0: For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to Richard at richardesimmons3.com.